This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 5th, 2023. I'm Scott And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're going to review all of 2022, or at least the few things we found interesting are predictions from way back in episode 273. Uh, I think you actually have to go to our website now, I've, or maybe it's still on our feed. I've changed our feeds recently so that they only show the latest 50 episodes. It makes the whole website work so much better. And no one downloads whole episodes anyway, but they're still on the internet, politicos.ca. And then we'll make some predictions for this year. We'll round off the show with some updates domestically and in our quick takes as usual. But it's been the holidays, not a lot has happened. And, you know, as it's a new year, maybe kick off your New Year's resolution to support independent media producers like us at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's jump into our review of 2022, the year that was. It was a good year for me personally, although I saw every meme out there, and I don't judge anyone for saying it was a very shit year because there was a lot of shitty things that happened. Uh, yeah, like it was a little more mitts for me personally, but also like when I kind of look at the year overall, the, the big kind of takeaway I have from it is it's when the bill came due, like the the free lunch period kind of uh, ended and we're stuck with the uh, the problems of inflation, global security, and all of that, and kind of the the bad choices and the uh, effects of what had happened in previous years all kind of came crashing down in 2022. And more people died of COVID than in 2021 or 2020, but we stopped caring. Uh, but let's start with BC politics. Lots of shakeups to here in the province in 2022. Early in February, the BC Liberal leadership race came to a conclusion with Kevin Falcon uh, taking it. Not super surprising, but it it took him a little bit to get there. It's not the uh, definitive first ballot victory he was hoping for. No, but it was clean enough, and there wasn't a lot of division left in the party. And I get the sense that they are moving forward. So you know, he moved forward with that. He launched his Should We Rebrand the Party initiative that went through, and now they are looking at BC United as their new name to be so considered sometime next year. I believe that the, the filings for that haven't actually gone through, and it's still technically the uh, BC Liberal Party for the time being. Yeah, I think because internally they have to do like an AGM and a big vote at that, which will probably be fairly pro forma, but it'll be sometime in the next year. And then they can do all the paperwork with Elections BC and whatever else they're registered with. I don't know, Van City or wherever they have their bank accounts and all of that. But, you know, cheers to Kevin Falcon. It was a victory that was like, he did the hard work of the campaign, but didn't do it as publicly, right? He wasn't the most prominent name on social media during that race, but, you know, he shook the right hands and got the votes he needed. And on the other side of the aisle... John Horgan announced his retirement. Uh, there was a BC NDP leadership race, kind of, before the only other person in it got disqualified, leaving uh, David Eby as the new leader and premier of the province. Yeah, it was quite a messy situation. It started out kind of as expected, like everyone was kind of thinking. We even thought, and we'll get into our predictions, that there might be a you know, final year for Horgan, and here it came out. And then we thought, you know, it'd be Ravi versus EB, but EB just cleaned up caucus and announced with like all but two or three major MLAs endorsing him. And it became clear this was the let's crown EB the next premier show. And then when Anjali Apadurai entered the race, it got a little more contested. She gained more ground and had more momentum than I think anyone really expected, and EB floundered, but in the end, um, so, they did cleared he even flounder, or did he, like, not try? <laughs> it... Fair. Whichever case, 
he came out victorious in the way that I don't think anyone really wanted. But here we are. We have a new premier. Uh, yeah, it was about the messiest possible way to do that. And yeah, no one came out of that whole thing looking good. The other major leadership race that happened this year wasn't messy, but it was um, embar- equally embarrassing, different embarrassing. The Green Party of Canada ran a leadership race that was like supposed to be this game show thing. They talked at one point about having like a video game tournament as one of their debates or something like that. It all was very cringe. Um, They wanted to make it a reality show. They were going to have like three rounds of voting or something, and then they ran out of money and disgust. Once again, proving that doing politics differently does not mean doing politics well. And out of all of that, they have five contestants, two of whom are running as pairs for co-leadership models, which maybe one day we'll talk to Dave Mosscrop because he has some interesting thoughts about that as both a, a possibly good and possibly bad thing. Um, but in the final ballot, again, very messy, not clean victory, or not definitive victory, I should say, Elizabeth May wins the Green Party of Canada leadership race, and she will share power unexpectedly. Possibly? With- like, uh eh. I don't know. Like, I would not want to be the co-leader in the Elizabeth, I mean, Green Party, uh, with Elizabeth May. Like, there is clearly a primary person in that relationship and a secondary, and we all know which one Elizabeth May is going to be. I think it was Jonathan Pitano, something like that, was the guy who You see, the fact that you can't remember is telling. Yeah. And one other leadership race happened this year in the Conservative Party of Canada. Back in February, there was a uh, lot of upset in the Conservative Party, and the knives came out in the first time. I think we've seen the Reform Act really invoked as Conservative caucus members voted to oust Aaron O'Toole as leader. That kicked off a race that culminated with Pierre Polyev winning, which wasn't too surprising. Um, There was some mess in there as Patrick Brown got disqualified for who even remembers. Yeah, and there was a little game show in part. I I remember one debate had this weird like paddle thing going on that was also just kind of embarrassing for everyone involved. Polyev really changed the nature of Canadian politics, though, in that race, right? He brought more people into the Conservative Party than have been brought into any political party in Canadian history. Uh, We don't know what the long-term effect of that's going to be. It's not seeming like he is moderating or trying to moderate the party in the same way that O'Toole definitely did, or even Scheer tried to appear himself to do. Uh, Rather, he is doing what you know, he did and trying to rally around flashpoint issues that he thinks will attract momentum for the party. Uh, he's not hurting, but he's also not broken ahead of where Aaron O'Toole, for example, was at any point. I don't know how they'll do in a campaign, though. Yeah, that, that very much remains up in the air. I, I still think overall, Pierre Polyev has a advantage going into the next election is more likely to win it than not in large part just because the current government is just so tired and is kind of worn out as well and after 10 years you really have to make the case not why you should stay in power deserve another chance as a, a government but why the other side is just like it's just so unacceptable that and it's not clear that's going to necessarily be something the liberals are going to be able to to land on this one and i think kind of just where we are in the cycle plus the demonstrated ability to round up a much higher support than we'd seen uh in past leadership races like the the sign up numbers were truly impressive uh from Pierre Polyev and that those couple of things together all point towards uh i think they're going to be stronger than expected and the last couple elections the uh the Liberals held on by like the bare skin of their teeth with some very efficient votes, losing the popular vote. And it only takes 1% to 2% in Ontario for a whole bunch of seats to go the other way. The big problem for Polyev, though, is he's running with momentum that might just be the conservative base in Alberta. And that is kind of 
seen by the way that O'Toole went down. So what happened in February and Jan- late January as well was this trucker convoy protest that everyone remembers rolling into Ottawa, leading to the Emergencies Act invocation, which we'll get into, and really just creating this sense of crisis in the country. Uh, coupled with that were the shutdowns at a couple major border crossings. Aaron, uh, Aaron O'Toole didn't know what to do with that. Pierre Polyev went and shook the hands of the truckers early on, uh, distanced himself a little bit later, but didn't fully, but never really disowned them in the same way, even when it became much less uh, of a, I don't know, good thing to be around. When it became clear they were creating a lot of disruption in Ottawa as opposed to making whatever point it was they were trying to make about restrictions, which were largely evaporating at the time. And also all the racism in it, the kind of subtle underlying and sometimes quite overt. Yeah, that was kind of the other big thing this year was the convoy in Ottawa and the invocation of the Emergencies Act, which this, I believe, is the first time we've ever invoked the act since it was passed during the Mulroney years in the 80s. Um, The resulting inquiry has been going on for the past several months and has basically concluded, but the reports have not been issued yet. So we will have to keep an eye out for that in the uh, coming months. The, The polling that has been done generally indicates that the public is on board, but there were kind of enough questions about whether the underlying thresholds were really met that there's potentially some messy stuff depending on how uh, the commission ends up uh, determining things. I mean, overall, all the polling I've seen has been relatively sympathetic to the government, especially among liberal and NDP voters. I mean, it was controversial that the NDP supported that at the time. I didn't support them supporting it, but they made the choice. They had entered into the confidence and supply agreement that they announced. That was this year too, wasn't it? Or was it late 2021? Who I feel like remembers? it was 2021, but I can't actually recall. But the NDP has you know, upheld their end of the bargain to keep the government afloat. They've gotten some initial trinkets from the government. And yeah, it was this year. There you go. And it was after the uh, confidence. It was actually after that. It was uh, March of this year. There we go. That's what I was thinking. What a year. But yeah, it seems like, you know, if I had to make a prediction on here, and this isn't a formal prediction, but I don't think the government's going to be facing heavy consequences from the Emergencies Act. Like the people who don't like it are the people who don't like the liberals for the most part. And no one's really changed their vote around this. Um, I mean, the thing that's going to challenge them is inflation and the economy, traditional pol- political issues, as everywhere in the world is seeing somewhere between 5 and 10% inflation rates, where we hadn't seen anything above three for the last like five years. And oh, longer than that, we've basically been in a prolonged period of low inflation. And that's stressful for, you know, the average person trying to afford groceries to just the Bank of Canada trying to figure out what to do uh, to the government who, of all levels, who are just cutting checks left, right, and center to try to help and also not, you know, uh, get voted out for not doing anything. And it's one of those things where people are going to blame the governments, even when it's a global problem precipitated by what we're about to talk to, among other things. Um, but it's definitely going to be the issue that I think keeps coming back for at least a little while, unless, I don't know, the economy magically changes again. Nothing I seems think predictable. probably unlikely. And yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot of issues going forward and related to the inflation, which, yeah, is, lots of people hate it, and it's going to be causing political problems. Uh, it's also the... Uh, Various central banks around the world are raising interest rates to try and deal with inflation, which is causing its own problems. And the effect of that is going to slow the economy. Various sectors are already feeling it. Uh, the real estate sector in particular is 
down fairly significantly uh, and is slowing as a result of high interest rates. And that potentially means that uh, in addition to the inflation we've had with, for the last uh, little bit and uh, the other thing that like 2022 was not when the inflation started, but it's when it became clear it was no longer going to be a transitory thing. Um, but as we deal with that, uh, high interest rates could quite plausibly trigger a recession, which would also be challenging for any government. One one of the triggers of the inflation has been the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and Vladimir Putin. The the security action that is clearly not and uh, never was uh, that surprised a lot of people, you know, myself included. Uh, we saw a large Russian military force build up on the border, which seemed to mirror, you know, past buildups and escalating threats. But it, you know, they marched on Kiev in a way that we haven't seen in Europe for decades. And it became the fo focus of geopolitics in a way that not much has been for a while. Um, Canada has done its part to support Ukraine from the act of aggression. Um, it's still ongoing and it's not clear there's a quick and easy path to peace in the near term. Um, but here yeah, we are. It, it, it caught a lot of people by surprise. It also was, there were some pretty significant uh, indications going on and uh, the uh, US intelligence was like spot on for like pretty much the entire lead up, which uh they hadn't necessarily had a great couple decades so that was a probably a feather in their cap on that one um but like yeah the big story of the year has to be the invasion of ukraine it's the thing that's kind of been the backdrop to the, to the entire year and it's been the an unfortunate reminder that uh you know the world is still a very dangerous place out there and that uh the peace and security that huge chunks of, of the world uh canada europe uh took for granted is not something they can in fact take for granted and a lot of bad decisions premised on that have really come back to bite a lot of countries the uh germany perhaps being one of the ones that uh has felt the pinch from the uh their old their poor decision to be overly reliant on Russia for energy, uh, as well as like we weren't able to provide as much aid to Ukraine as we would have liked because we didn't have the resources here in Canada uh, to provide them more military aid because we didn't invest enough in our forces. And we gave them what we could. We sent some, uh, M I think four M triple sevens as well as uh, some a bunch of small arms and stuff, but that only goes so far. And it would have been better if we could have provided them more aid. And it's I think also shone a light that we need to take a serious look at our own uh, military because the uh, the assumption that the geopolitical adversaries aren't going to cause trouble isn't one that we can uh, assume anymore. And we probably should never have assumed it. And the queen died. Yeah, there's no good segue on that one. Uh, yeah, that was the other big thing. I, I, everyone knew it was going to happen eventually, but it still felt very surreal when it did. It's one of those things that doesn't change anything politically, like, except now we have to refer to the Alberta courts as the court of King's bench and lawyers are now, or, you know, the prestige lawyers are now Casey's instead of QC's. That still takes me getting used to when I see it. Yeah. And legal cases are now Rex v. whoever is being prosecuted. But like, yeah, it, a lot of the, the background stuff is going to change, but day to day, it won't uh, be as much. But let's, look back at what we said would happen rather than what actually happened. Let's go through your predictions. I think we actually both did about the same kind of. Yeah. So, uh, this. yeah, we both kind of got about half of them, right? So 
I predicted that Ellis Ross would uh, become BC Liberal leader. Didn't happen, obviously. That we would have a return to normal on COVID, basically defined as no significant restrictions in BC. That did happen, although, as you mentioned, the uh, the case numbers haven't necessarily returned to normal, so to speak. We also have a lot more variants than expected. And just like this, I don't think either of us were going to predict a massive, like, respiratory illness season that would swamp children's hospitals yeah that's and terrible like, yeah i've uh had a bad cold for the last little while like just trying to find basic cold med adult cold medicine anywhere in vancouver has been a big challenge we still haven't fixed those supply chains yeah it's it's not great i i thankfully did manage to find some but like i think i got the last uh date will in mount pleasant uh I also predicted that uh, the BC NDP and or their leader would poll below 35% of the polls. That was incorrect as the uh, the lowest uh, result was 42% from August Reed back in July, uh, June of this year. I thought Doug Ford would get reelected, and he did. I predicted that the GOP would regain both the House and the Senate in the US, so one of two. Although the GOP is not doing great in the House as we record. They have 11 times tried to pick a speaker and still are deadlocked with their radical fringe refusing, like, to so, yeah, Jesus they, they Christ. Have, <laughs> I don't even I'm going to count that as a win because they got the on-paper majority. But, yeah. like, yeah, how things are going right now, maybe six months from now, they're still trying to vote on a speaker and nothing has happened. Uh, I predicted that Aaron O'Toole would cease to be the Conservative Party leader, so uh, check there. And that contingent on that, that the Conservative Party would run a stupidly long leadership race to find a six months or more. And, and you barely got that one. So it was seven months, five days from when Pierre Polyev announced he was going to run. Uh, and it was six months, two days from when the party issued the leadership rules. So like it Still, bo on both counts, from when the first candidate announced and from when the, uh, the leadership rules were put in place, it, it was more than six months, although the last one was close. Yeah, it, it was one of the shorter races. Um, yeah, it, was not, but it wasn't like this nine-month or 18-month monstrosity like some of the other ones have been. It still felt way too long. Uh, and then the final two predictions, both of which got wrong, was that Canada would get hit by a major cyber attack. We've had a few, but none, none that would, like I think, raise to the level of major. It turns out uh, Russia turned all of their cyber attacks on their neighbor. Yeah, and uh, even that apparently is petering off a bit, because uh, I think they've hit the low-hanging fruit on that. Uh, and finally, probably the biggest miss of all of these was that uh, predicted the S&P 500 would close up uh, over the year, and uh, it is down 19.7% and has had its worst year since the 2008 crash. Don't look at your portfolio if you don't have to. Just don't. On the other hand, it's a, stocks are now at a, selling at a discount. So if you're investing for the long term, it's uh, not the worst thing. I predicted Kevin Falcon would win the BC Liberal leadership race and nailed that one. I also said Horgan would announce his plan to retire. I was like, I felt like guessing on that one, like trying to read tea leaves. Uh, that said, I did think Ravi Kalon and David Eby would be the early front runners. And I think when speculation was first there, that was true, but it would very quickly crystallized. And when David Eby formally announced it was over, uh, I was optimistic for anything to happen in Ontario and it didn't. So I was wrong. I even went to say there'd be a minority government and that didn't happen. I thought, Weirdly, that Jason Kenney and Aaron O'Toole would have a great year and still have their leadership in both cases. Uh, nope. Both took a wild turn. Um, but I did get the fact that we are stuck with daylight saving time right, and I wish I was wrong. Yeah. That that would be a nice one to finally change, but uh, unfortunately, we're, we are still stuck with that. What do you got for 2023, Scott? Okay, so... Uh, starting off internationally, I think that uh, Ukraine is going to end up holding more territory at the end of this year than they started the year with. Uh, things are looking up for them. They've had, a, over the past several months, some um, uh, 
impressive battlefield successes and regain the significant portion of the territory that had been lost in the early days of the war. Um, and I think just today it was announced that uh, both uh, Germany and the U.S. are going to be providing armored vehicles, and this comes a couple days after France announced they're sending a bunch of theirs. So, like, more kit keeps rolling in, and with all that, I, I'm feeling that they are probably going to maintain the uh, momentum and be able to keep going and uh, get the Russians out of some of the occupied territories. Uh, moving back to Canada here, uh, I'm going to predict that the uh, <coughs> liberal NDP supply and confidence agreement is going to fall apart, that there's something's going to strain it to the point where it doesn't hold on. I don't necessarily know if that's going to mean a uh, like a no confidence vote and the government's going to fall, but like the formal deal may may not hold together. Uh, in Alberta, I think Rachel Notley is uh, going to win the Alberta election, and the NDP are going to form government. Uh, I'm going to double down on my S&P 500 prediction and make the same one for 2023. Uh, this one I feel a little more confident about because. Uh, historically, there's only been about a one in 10 chance that, uh, the market closes down two years in a row. Uh, and finally, the government is going to announce that either the, uh, F-35 or the, uh, Canadian Surface Combatant Program, the, uh, the new frigates, are going to be delayed in their procurement. Going with the safe bets on the last <laughs> yeah. two there. Uh, I'll start in the U.S. We're going to have the lead up to the 2024 presidential nominations and election happening. Both Joe Biden and Donald Trump have said they're going to try and run again. I have no clue what's I have no clue what's going to happen for the Republicans, but I think we will see someone try to bring forward a challenge to the Democrat nomination, and not just like. Marianne Williamson, who's already saying she's going to try again, but... Are the crystals telling her to run yeah, again? Yeah, I think so. Um, someone trying to bring forward a little bit more of a legitimate challenge. Now, maybe I'm just, you know, shooting out there, but Joe Biden is still really old, and it feels like he might just back out, but I don't know. Uh well, I guess on the Republican side, I wrote down here that we'll see DeSantis run against Trump. I think he's already announced that, so I don't even know if that counts, but I guess we'll see. I'm not sure if he has announced, but like it's very clear he's going to do that. Yeah, so I'll take a gimme. Uh, I don't think we'll see a federal election this year. I think the supply and confidence agreement can hold, given the hardest parts are kind of over. Like The dental plan actually needs to be built. The Liberals didn't really do anything with it this past year. They just announced some like attestation-based checks for people who don't otherwise have dental coverage for their kids, and then you can just get six hundred bucks. But you have to keep your receipts. It's very weird and untrustworthy. But if they can build that, I think that's the hardest part. And they're working on it clearly. So if the agreement falls apart, it won't be because of the NDP. Um, speaking of the NDP, I think I agree that they can take Alberta. I think they can also take Manitoba back. Uh, the progressive conservatives have not been in a good state there. So in both provinces, it'll take, you know, some Hail Marys for the blue team to hold on to power. I'm going to take a really easy, but I have no detailed information on Prince Edward Island, who is also having an election this year, that they will have essentially no change with the Progressive Conservatives winning there and the Greens remaining the official opposition. I base that solely on what the last few polls have been what that I looked at Wikipedia earlier today. Um, but maybe PEI politics could change radically and quickly because it's 100,000 people. And it's like, what, 40,000 voters? Like, who knows? Who knows? I'm just going to say it's the same. I don't think we'll have a snap BC election. I think David Eby will hold on and just try to get more things done. He's going to spend a bunch of money and try to convince us with a bit of a record as to why he should be elected as premier and not just appointed. 
by the party. And finally, I'm going to say it, we're going to have to deal with daylight savings for another year, at very least because the Congress can't get their shit together, which means they can't approve the west coast of the US all abandoning daylight savings times or going to permanent daylight savings times. Um, but we'll still be changing the clocks in the spring and fall until 2024, and it sucks. So there you have it. Let's close off the show with some of the latest news. We have some news here in BC, and then we'll jump over to quick takes. First up, cryptocurrency is banned in BC. It's not exactly true, but the government released a press release kind of quietly that they're hitting pause on new electrical hookups from BC Hydro to any cryptocurrency mining projects. Yeah, so this is basically going to put a pause on new cryptocurrency mining projects, assuming the crash in the crypto markets hasn't already done that. Uh, I, love, I love announcing regulations like months after they make any difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, so at the time of the release, there were 21 projects uh, that were requesting a total of 1,403 megawatts of uh, power, uh, which for comparison is more than Site C uh, produ would produce, which is rated at 1,100 megawatts. Uh, so that's a lot. The uh, seven current uh, uh, crypto currency mining operations aren't going to be affected. This is for new connections. Uh, but even then, they're using a total of 273 megawatts, which is also a lot. These things suck so much. Like, they suck power. They're just pointless this is a good decision by the government. It follows in line with what a couple other provinces have started doing a couple other jurisdictions because it's not it's not reasonable. It's not sustainable, it's not manageable. It's just it's just bad. Like I think I remember Jason Kenney making a press conference about how he's going to make Alberta the crypto center of Canada. I think Pierre Polyev was talking about that in his leadership race until the numbers crash but like when you start to think about like we would need a mega dam to just power the proposed projects let alone having like a new boom like this yeah, is yeah we we would obscene. need to start site D and E i think they have at least two more possible places on that river they could dam but we need electricity yes we need electricity to power you know all the transition for heating and vehicles and to get us all fossil fuels, we don't need it to do imaginary money. I mean, all money is imaginary, but this is like really imaginary. So yeah, I mean, good call. Kind of weird that they uh, felt the need to bury it in the end of the year stuff rather than just like announcing it earlier. I think they just didn't want controversy. There are some people who like crypto. I think there are probably more people who like crypto than dislike it a lot. And just a lot of people who don't care. So yeah, I, I, feel I get like it. The the people who are like super enthusiastic about crypto probably aren't the NDP's core demographic. They just don't vote, or they vote Pierre Polya because he courted them. But fair enough. They're, they're the uh, the dozens of people that vote for the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the NDP, though, Ravi Kalon, the new housing minister, has put out a statement around the record levels of immigration, noting that it's time for the federal government to pony up when it comes to affordable housing to give the targeted half a million new immigrants per year by 2025 homes to live in, or at least like not necessarily immigrants in a form or affordable housing, but just homes in general, which will also accommodate new immigrants, if that makes sense. Yeah, because the federal government is does not spend enough on housing to like close the gap with that big a number of people moving somewhere like you're just going to need a whole lot of private sector construction to to build that quantity of homes uh compared to the amount of spending i'm hoping this isn't uh a sign that he's laying the groundwork to do the very classic thing of blame ottawa for not spending enough money rather than the province doing the province's job in the province's areas of jurisdiction on stuff. 
some of the early signs in, in the EB government on terms of legislation has been promising, but also don't go far enough. And it's, I don't know, it, I'm a little uh, wary whenever the uh, provincial governments start to turn their attention to the feds whenever it comes to something that is very clearly within their wheelhouse, namely housing in this I th case. I think there's a very strong argument that Ravi's making. I wouldn't necessarily tie it to immigration, but I think it's an easy way to highlight an issue, although it is possibly politically risky as it r might stoke the xenophobia. Like Historically, the federal government put a lot of money into housing. Historically, through CMHC and other programs, they built a lot of social housing, and then the austerity of the 90s ended a lot of that. And BC kept funding for a little bit longer, but eventually we stopped building too. And that is among the reasons we have the crisis we have today, is just the lack of investment, as well as many other things going on. But, you know, getting Ottawa to come back to the table, I think, is the right call and the right push. Um, the BC government has invested more than has been invested in a long time, but I think you're also right that there's still a, another level to do here. So we'll see in the budget when it comes in a couple months what the province is doing, and hopefully we start to see the federal government also really push up. Like We have seen some movement from the Trudeau government on housing numbers, and there's a number of new measures that just came into effect as of January 1st or even just before that, around like the foreign buyers ban, um, which I don't think either of us were big champions of, but at least it's them wanting to appear like they're caring about housing. So ugh, I don't know. Yeah. The, the other thing I'll point out is that, yeah, uh, immig immigrants are one source of new household formation in a, a province, but it's not the only one, and ignoring stuff like interprovincial migration and, um, you know, family formations from uh, people graduating high school, like moving out of their parents' places, also doesn't uh, or ignoring those like doesn't paint a full picture of that. And like, if you're going to be adjusting federal funding to match provincial needs, only doing it on immigration is a little uh, short-sighted. 100%. Uh, but speaking of uh, the potential backlash effects, uh, there's a poll little early in the year we didn't cover uh, back in November uh, that I did want to highlight here. This was done by uh, Leger, and it shows that uh, about half of Canadians, 49%, uh, when asked about the federal government's uh, new plan, this was polling done about two weeks after the federal government announced their immigration target numbers that uh, you mentioned uh, when we were just talking about uh, the housing minister's comments, whether or not uh, they supported that and which uh, opinion best described their views on it. 49% uh, said admitted too many immigrants to Canada, 31 will admit the right number of immigrants, 5% uh, at it will not admit enough, and 16% uh, with an I don't know uh, slash prefer not to answer. Uh, I mainly wanted to highlight this because, like, we're both pretty pro-immigration. Like, I would probably be in that 5% of let's try and get that number up a little more. But uh, this is also, like, a pretty big warning sign that should be uh, taken fairly seriously, I think, because we're kind of the outlier globally when it comes to how our population views immigration. Uh, we've maintained a pretty consistent, like, cross-party support for it, um, and that has pretty rarely been the case, both historically within Canada, like, that number only, I think, crossed over into majority support sometime in, like, the 90s or early 2000s, uh, as well as, like, globally, it's pretty rare, uh, for countries to be that way, and... That's a delicate thing that should be maintained, if at all possible, and it's great the government's welcoming more uh, people to Canada, but, like, one of the big problems with the Liberals is they're not very good at 
doing things, and a whole lot of public services and whatnot are going to have to be expanded to meet the drone population, and that doesn't, that's not exactly this government's forte, and as much as I would like to see those numbers go up, like, maybe that is not the most pragmatic thing to do at this time, uh, or at least it's something that should uh, begin some serious thoughts Well more work gets done on stuff like housing, healthcare, etc. to to reassure the the Canadians who are concerned that uh this stuff's gonna further tats uh already strained sectors. So I would add the typical caveat that with any poll, how the question is framed really matters. This one talks about specific numbers, but it's numbers within the government of Canada's plan. Uh and it talks about the twenty twenty one numbers, but it doesn't so much put a like larger historical context in there. And it's a really hard question to talk about. I think if you just ask people, are you pro or anti-immigrant, we'd have a pretty high positive here. Um, when you look at the crosstabs by voting intention, the liberals have 50% say it's the right number. Turns out they, the people who vote liberal like things liberals do. Conservatives are at 65% too many immigrants, block 71% too many immigrants. People party, there's only like... 30 respondents, but they're 81% too many immigrants. Only 9% say it's the right number. The Green Party, only about 50 respondents, but half of them, 52% said it's too many immigrants. Uh, the NDP is 36% too many and 38% the right number um, with about 230 respondents. So it does vary based on political partisanship a bit in there. And you know, you're right that there's definitely ways that this could work against the government and it will need to be managed. But there's still like a strong core, like group of Canadians who are happy to see us go to half a million a year. And that's something to work with that, you know, probably won't peel off too many, especially if the Liberals and NDP can hold on to the base that does support that. Or pick off the Conservatives who don't want their party to go anti-immigrant. Yeah, although I, I'm i not necessarily sure that's like the best outcome because like one of the strengths of Canada when it comes to uh, being welcoming to immigration is that there is that cross-party consensus and having that break down would probably not be good even if it helps the Liberals win one more election. Let's jump to quick takes and a couple federal stories while we've sort of moved from immigration, a federal issue, to other federal issues. Let's talk about CSIS, the Emergencies Act, and what is an emergency, a national emergency. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino has been asked, and he says he is open to changing CSIS's legal authority after a number of things came up during the inquiry inquiry around the needs for critical reforms and how CSIS can act to respond to threats, including the definition CSIS has of what an emergency is. Yeah, so this is something that's uh, potentially quite impactful and related to the Emergencies Act, uh, which oddly enough doesn't actually define emergencies itself. It just points to the uh, CSIS Act as where to get that definition from. Scott, an emergency uh, is like porn. You know it when you see it. <laughs> there is a certain truth to that. Uh, but when it comes to figuring out when you uh, having some legal definitions that kind of guide you, it, it is helpful to to have something uh, a little more concrete. Um, there, As a result, there's, there is concern that the... Uh, Threats to the security of Canada, rather, which is the actual thing that was uh, noted. No, sorry, not the uh, not the definition of emergency, but uh, with the context of emergencies with the threats to the security of Canada, that the language of the act is very dated, basically from the uh, 1980s when it was originally passed, and that it doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the current. Uh, threat environment in the modern era uh, with stuff like homegrown radicalization 
and uh, issues around that. The big challenge here that I see, and I've seen civil liberties groups and others bring this up, is, and this is something that I think Christa Freeland mentioned in some of her testimony as well as others, is that the government wants to include threats to economic security in alongside, you know, threats to human life and things like that. And that starts to tread into these areas where it's like, well, does a protest that blocks a train count as like a national emergency or is it just inconvenient in many ways? Well, and like including those kind of things as like national security threats is can be troubling, right? For people who to push back on that, like the blockade at the Windsor border crossing um had a significant economic uh threat to it, but and but I think there's pretty widespread agreement that it also po posed a larger threat to the country at even if it was one of economic nature and like you also do need to learn from these situations and cases like the the Windsor blockade points to where uh, those threats can be. And like the CSIS act also isn't just around domestic situations. It's also related to uh, counter espionage and dealing with uh, foreign actors who intend Canada harm. And like we've witnessed in Ukraine, uh, Economic infrastructure is one of the things that gets targeted uh, because it is important to the vitality of a nation. So there is also a strong case that that is something that does need to be considered when securing a country against threats. My favorite thing in this whole article, though, is the quote from Wesley Wark of the Center for International Governance Innovation who is very in favor of a change, saying, I don't think we can live with a 1984 model for this. Not referring to, as most would assume, the George Orwell book, but the year the CSIS Act was written. But I just like the idea of thinking that we are currently living in a 1984 approach, and we need something um, more authoritarian, more granting more powers to the over spy agencies. Oh, it's a funny quote, just with that unintentional... It's not necessarily granting more powers, but like more scoping out kind of the range of the, of letting things their kind of powers apply to more things to to make sure that the uh, the legislation and the current environment uh, are properly aligned. I think would probably be a better way of putting it. Um, yeah, so, so no legislative changes have been introduced. And like I th think it's pretty likely that the government is going to wait for the. Uh, emergency act commission report to come out before making any moves but nevertheless something to watch and um like a couple of the commenters in the piece noted it's this past year has kind of really shown the vulnerabilities and and dangers of the the world and it's probably going to be something governments are going to be thinking a lot harder about than they would have a year or two ago but I think we should be equally cognizant of the threats to civil liberties posed by um, civil servants and bureaucrats and agencies like this just creating security theater for the sake of it. I am thinking of, you know, the fun. I just flew on an airplane and we're still still dealing with post 9-11 bullshit. Like, we have to throw out your kid's apple juice box because it's over 100 milliliters. It's like, that's not saving any lives, Scott. Yeah, and when I was in the States a uh, couple weeks back, yeah, having to take off the shoes at the airport was annoying. I didn't have to take it off at Vancouver. I had to take it off at Calgary coming back. I haven't actually, Same it's shoes. It's been pretty rare in Canada, I found, where they've actually required you to take off your shoes. But yeah, like all the American airports. So annoying. Speaking of annoying, there's no new public domain material in Canada for another 20 years as a result of policies that were brought in in the last Budget Amendment Implementation Act this past year that meets our free trade agreement requirements. This means that when an author of a material dies, instead of their material staying copyrighted for 50 years after their death, 
already excessive, uh, it will be for 70 years from their death. Uh, this helps keep Mickey Mouse from being something we can all just draw and profit off of, but has a lot of knock-on effects that really suck and keep a lot of otherwise dormant material from being reimagined or used. Yeah, so it uh, means that basically the next time something's going to enter the public domain is going to be uh, 2043. Um, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and yeah, as you mentioned, this is uh, a requirement to uh, meet the terms of the, uh, what is it, the USMCA, the, the new North American Free Trade Agreement uh, on there. That was one of the changes that got negotiated. It's not retroactive, so something that, like entered last year when it... Uh, hit Life of the Author plus 50 years, it doesn't get its copyright back. They remain in the public domain. Uh, but it is going to apply to anything going forward. It's not ideal. It's a little annoying. Um, and people like, like Michael Geist and other um, internet copyright material experts have said, you know, there is a compromise here that could work, which is just like a free or $1 registration system where you say, hey, I still care about, or some, you know, the inheritor of an estate still cares about the copyright for something, so they will extend it. But all of the stuff that no one is tied to can become public domain. Uh, yeah, that that would be good. It doesn't say in the story whether or not the, the, net, the treaty language would allow such a thing, but yeah, that would be better uh, than what this is. Yeah, uh, kind of sucks. That, and like, we... I don't know, maybe could have negotiated harder on that, but it probably would have mean granting concessions elsewhere. And like, I don't know, I wouldn't have minded if uh, we did a little less to keep the dairy farmers well well protected and got shorter copyright terms. But uh, that wasn't the uh, decision that was made in Ottawa on what to prioritize in the negotiations. And since the U.S. produces a whole lot more content, they tend to care about uh, this more than we do. So, not necessarily a surprise that was how the, the negotiations ended up. Protect the dead artists and the dairy farmers at the same time. Happy 2023. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.